We're going to turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read some verses here and then preach the Word of God as He has laid it upon my heart for this service. I believe it is a word from the Lord. As I was sitting in the prayer meeting on Tuesday night, and that was a very, very touching prayer meeting. The Lord was among us. Uh, the verses on which I want to speak came with great power to my soul, and I knew right away the Lord had given me a word for today. And so before we read, let us pray, and let's then uh, come after that to read and to hear the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we bow in Thy presence once more. We come afresh to Thee. We bow down with gratitude that we're privileged to have the Bible in our hands, that we are blessed to be able to read it, to be given understanding of it. And Lord, I do pray that Thou will help us now, help every Christian here, that there be a word in season for those who aren't children of God. But Lord, especially Thy children, with all their troubles, trials, difficulties, speak today, bring upon us the comfort of the Word, the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and draw very near. Shut us in with Thee, and give power to me to preach Thy truth. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and for His sake. Amen. Second Corinthians 1 and verse uh, number 1, we We'll start reading there. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant, that means unlearned, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death, or the answer, or response to death, in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that He will yet Deliver us, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. And God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Now, Second Corinthians is one of the 14 books that Paul gave to the Christian church. Moreover, while there is material from the apostle's hand that is common to all his epistles, his second letter to the Corinthians is the most autobiographical of them all. In this epistle, there is more of Paul than there is in any of his other books. All his letters reveal Paul the laborer, but Second Corinthians goes farther than that. This book, yes, it does show us the hands of Paul as he labors. It shows us the feet of Paul as he traverses the world of that day and his missionary journeys. But then it does something more. Second Corinthians draws aside the veil. It shows us the mind and the heart. 
of this man, Paul the Apostle. It reveals the inner being of this man. It displays the emotions that filled his soul and the feelings that gripped his heart. And all of that, of course, making him what he was in the cause of our Lord Jesus. And so in that manner, Paul shows us that there is much more to the work of the preaching ministry that he exercised than what might be called the tools of the trade. This book of 2 Corinthians is very much a minister's epistle in the sense that it's written by a minister, of course, who unveils his soul and his heart the whole way through. And so we find that what he does do is show us that being a minister of the gospel is more than the preaching ministry, or sorry, more than using the tools of the trade. The facility of speech, a good grasp and knowledge of the Word of God, or theology, or other necessary courses that equip a man to instruct the minds of his people, along with taking a passage or a verse, analyzing it, outlining it, giving its meaning to the congregation. These are all essentials. But a minister of Jesus Christ must have a heart that is aflame with love for Christ and is energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what makes 2 Corinthians so unique. This is what makes it so important. It actually uncovers the heart of the greatest of all the ministers of Jesus Christ who have ever lived and served in this world throughout the scene of time. This unveiling of Paul's heart in this book begins at the very outset. Moved by the Holy Spirit after his initial greeting in verses 1 and 2, Paul immediately begins to write of the troubles that he encountered and was continuing to encounter in his ministry. In the passage that we have read today, he employs words such as tribulation, trouble, sufferings, the word afflicted, the word pressed, the word despaired, and even the word death. As he writes, he uses those words, and as he does so, he writes in what is called the first person plural. He, he, he continually employs the words we and us and our. But the point is, in using those particular pronouns, he is not addressing the Corinthians as those who are going through the troubles, but he's writing of his, of, of his own heart, his own experience, and his own troubles, along with those who were his colleagues in the ministry. So please understand that. When he uses the word we, or the word us, or the word our, he's writing of himself and his colleagues. When he addresses the Corinthians in these verses, he uses the pronouns you, ye, and your. And that makes a distinction. That shows us very clearly that when he talks about we and our and so on, he's referring to the, tribula the, the tribulation and the troubling and the suffering of which he and his fellow ministers and missionaries were all experiencing as they labored with him as he pressed on in the service of Christ and his God. I want to speak to you today from verses 3 and 4. Because in these two verses, we find that Paul gives us his reaction. This is so important. He gives us his reaction to the adversity that he personally encountered as a gospel minister. He's, in verses 3 and 4, he's not, he's not writing about himself in the sense of wanting people's pity or compassion. Not that at all, but rather what he is doing in verse number 3 and verse number 4 is giving to us his response, his reaction to, to what was upon him, the troubles, the trials that he was facing. We must understand that immediately. These two verses are Paul's response to what he's going through. But at the same time, before I go any farther, let me say this. I want to say three things about Paul's response as we see in these two verses but what he does say here is very applicable to us. And of course, I will be applying what he says as we go through this message today. 
It's very personal to Paul. It's Paul writing about himself, about his troubles, his trials, but how he responded to them. And yet in that, we are taught much. We learn much. Our congregation has been having many troubles and trials in terms of death, in terms of critical injury, in terms of people in surgery or having had surgery or maybe going to face surgery. And therefore, we we are feeling the pressure. We're feeling with our brethren and sisters the pains, the sorrows, the troubles they're going through. I trust you are. I trust you're praying for them. I trust that you feel for them in these days. But how do we react to all that? That's the question. Very important question, and it's very important that we see the answer to it. And so there are three aspects to Paul's response to his own trials from which we can learn as to how we respond in our trials, our sorrows, our difficulties. Number one, here's where Paul starts, Paul's adoration. Notice the first few words of verse 3. They are these, Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Now, the particular word blessed, that is the Greek word in the original language, is used in the New Testament only of God, never of anybody else. So get a hold of that. It's a word that signifies gratitude and adoration. So we can read these words, adored be our God. I want you to get a hold of this. It's an expression of the highest veneration and thankfulness. In all of Paul's 14 epistles, you'll find that they all start somehow or other with a form of praise unto God. In each case, he lays down his pen, as it were, he bows his head in worship, and he pours out in every epistle at the very beginning a flood of thanksgiving and adoration to God. And he does it here. Adored be our God, he's saying, as he starts verse number 3. But what I want you to notice is, this is remarkable in his circumstances. He's living every day with death. He was surrounded by the most malicious and cruel enemies of Jesus Christ and of Paul himself. His sufferings are incessant. His cares are voluminous. They can't even be numbered. And great pressure is on his mind. And yet, as he sits down here, or whatever his posture was, I I assume he sat down to write, here are his first words, Adored be God. And that, my friend, is remarkable. His adoration has a lot of significance as we think about this. Adored be God. Because it tells us of Paul's confidence in God. Adored be God. Before he writes a word about tribulation or trial or impending death, he wants his readers to enter into adoration of God along with him. Men and women, he's teaching you and me today that with all our troubles, all our trials, all our difficulties, all our griefs, all our sorrows, this is where we must begin. Adoring God. I know that's not easy, but let me just think with you about this. This reveals his confidence in God. The words of adoration here are filled with confidence in God. In Paul, there was absolutely no self-confidence. His confidence is entirely in his God. If you'll turn to chapter 3, And just see this in this epistle, because it comes out again and again. I take an example here for you to see. Chapter 3, verse number 4. And he says there, And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And in those three verses, you'll notice this Godward trust. 
that Paul has that he, that he uh, exudes as he writes these words, that he displays as he, as he pens these terms in those, in those words in, in chapter 3, verses 4 through to 6. And what you notice there is that Paul's sufficiency in the Christian life and in the Christian ministry was entirely of God. He had no feeling of sufficiency or trust in himself. He, he couldn't trust in himself. But rather, it was God who was the one in whom he was trusting the whole way through. And that's just one example we could take out of this little book. Never mind his other letters to show you and me today that here is why we can adore God. Because we can have the absolute confidence in God that God deserves from us. You see what I'm saying, Christian? If you are going to live for God and serve God, He deserves your confidence. And if we've got our confidence in God, we'll have no confidence in ourselves or no confidence in the flesh or no confidence in our own ways or our own manner of doing things. And especially is that true in the season of affliction or trouble. Because in that season, there are great dangers for the soul of the Christian. When seasons of trouble come and difficulty, Satan, you see, seeks to take advantage of those difficulties. He wants to drive the child of God deeper into darkness and even into despair. That's the enemy's strategy. And that was what he did not only with Paul, as we will see a little later on again, but furthermore, if you take Job, what was the devil's objective with Job? It was to bring Job down. It was to have Job curse God and lose confidence in God. But that's not the thing that happened. Job's confidence in God in the midst of all his sorrow and trial, yea, in times when he couldn't understand what was going on, as you read that book, his confidence in God remained. I will bring you a little later to Job 1, to the closing verses of that chapter. And we'll look at those in connection with another thought here. But throughout the book of Job, you find this coming out again and again and again. This man's confidence in God in the midst of his trials. Do you remember what he said in chapter 23, verse number 10? He said this, But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. And at that point, Job did not know where he was going. He could not understand what God was doing. He couldn't work it out in his mind. He wasn't helped by Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad. They made things worse. He actually said to them, didn't he? Miserable comforters are ye all, because they only add it to his sorrows. And Job is in darkness. He's down at the very bottom, but he can say this, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. Dear Christian, note that today. In your darkest hour, the Lord knows exactly, first of all, what He's doing. And secondly, where He has you and what He's doing with you. When sorrows come rolling over your mind and heart and, and grace fill your soul and troubles and trials come, be like Paul, be like Job. Say, blessed be God. He knows. He knows and understands it also reveals his composure before God. Whenever he said, Blessed be God, or let God be adored, it meant that he was composed, he was calm in his soul, he was enabled actually to keep on ministering in an unflappable way. Nothing, as it were, disturbed him in the face of all that tribulation to keep him from pursuing what the Lord had sent him to do. Now again, go with me to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And look now at verse number 8. 2 Corinthians 4 and the verse number 8. Notice what he says here. We are troubled on every side. 
yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And I tell you, he uses words there that are real. He was uh, troubled. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was cast down. But in every case, he accompanies what he says about those experiences by other words that make it absolutely clear that he remained composed in the face of it all. Oh, to have that holy composure, to have that holy calmness, to be able to say in the face of something like this that he writes about here in these words, trouble and perplexity and persecution and been cast down. Oh, how great to be able to say, yet, Lord, I am calm in my soul because I know that Thou art in charge. And again, Job exudes that and exhibits that same composure. If you'll go with me now to Job, I mentioned this. I want you to go there now to Job chapter 1 and look with me at what we find there. Job 1 and the verse number 20. And it says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Upon receiving the news that he had lost everything, in terms of his material possessions, but more especially that every one of his children was now dead. What does Job do? He gets down before God and he worships. And then he cries out, and here's the very same thing in verse 21. Toward the end of the verse, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's Job's adoration of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, notice in verse 11, just there in Job 1, verse number 11, notice what Satan had predicted that Job would do. Verse 11 says, uh, read the verse with me, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. You see, that's what Satan was after. That he would get Job to a place and into a position where Job would curse God to his face. What did Job do? The very same as Paul. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. You see, Satan was essentially challenging. That's what Christians need to notice today, whether with Paul or Job. But see this for yourself, dear believer. The devil was essentially challenging God's work of grace in Job. Go back in Job 1 to verse 9. Notice what the devil said there. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. What is the devil saying? He's saying to God, the only reason why Job serves you is because you've blessed Job so much. That's his allegation. And what is he alleging, therefore? That Job was a fake. That he wasn't a man of God. That he was a time server. It was all a charade, all an outward show. It's all externally saying, Job's not real, God. And if you, if you touch him or if you, if you try him, he will, he will curse you to your face. And as you look there, look back to verse number 8. Because you notice what God had said to Satan. This is interesting. The whole narrative here, Job 1 verse 8, The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's, nothing, there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? There's God's verdict of Job. And as soon as God said that, the devil came back. Job doesn't fear you except for what he can get out of it. And the devil, therefore, is challenging the work of grace in Job's heart. He's challenging the work of grace in Job's life. 
As I said earlier, he's saying Job is a fake. He's a deceiver. You chasten him. You touch him. You take away from what, from what he has, and he will curse you. My dear friend, let me tell you something. There's an insight there that you need to grasp. Because when troubles and trials come and the devil wants to drive you to despair, into the depths of sorrow, not knowing what way to go or where to turn, what is he doing? He is attacking the grace of God on you. He is setting his target upon the operation of God in your life. The God who saved you, the God who made you His own, the God who redeemed you with the blood of His Son, the God who drew you out of darkness into light. He's challenging all that. He's seeking to overthrow you. He wants to bring you down. And by bringing you down, besmirch the name of your God and your Savior. And therefore we are to be like Paul. We are to be like Job. We are not only to adore God in confidence in God, but also in calmness in God, because you find that these men retained their composure. They were not tossed to and fro. They were not brought to the place where they curse God or they blaspheme God. No, the very opposite. They get down and they worshiped and they said, Blessed be God. Who knows what's coming, brethren and sisters? For you, personally, collectively, as a congregation, you have no idea, I have no idea, what challenges may emerge, what difficulties might arise, what sorrows will overwhelm us before much more time has gone by, more than already. But here's what we are to do, first and foremost. Adore God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's not one word of complaint. There's not one word of murmuring. There's not one word of challenging God in Job or Paul. You might say, well, you know, they're greater men than me. And I understand why you say that. But remember, it's the grace of God alone that enabled them to react this way, to respond this way, to adore God. And my friend, that same grace is available to you. So there's the first part of his response. Paul's adoration. Please go back to 2 Corinthians 1. And the second place we've got Paul's affirmation. He does something here that is wonderful. I want you to see this as you go through these verses with me. Something wonderful indeed that Paul does here. Notice that he goes on in that verse, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse number 3, and he mentions three names for God. Look at them with me. Blessed be God. That's his adoration. Then it says this, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the first name. Then, secondly, the Father of mercies, the second name. And then the third one, the God of all comfort. And so this is Paul's affirmation here. He's affirming certain truths as he mentions those three names. Let me think with you about them here as quickly as I can. There is here the name that defines God's nearness to us. God's affinity with us. It's that lovely name. The first one there, after he says, Blessed be God in his adoration, the first name he uses is, Even the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you have there is an affirmation of God's affinity with us, His nearness to us, the fact that He is one with us. There's a little old hymn that says, it's not in our book, but it says this in one of the verses, Near, so very near to God, nearer I cannot be, for in the person of His Son I am as near as He. 
My friend, that verse is full of truth. It's full of theology. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now take that name, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That name conveys the great affinity or closeness or nearness that God has with His people. And in this name, there's a, there's a certain line of theological truth. The God whom Paul adored is the God whose Son became the Savior of sinners. And notice how it is written. The Father of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the pronoun our, in the middle of this name is so important. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ or the Father of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this, Christian, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want that, you, I want that to get home to you because the pronoun there, our, is so important. The Father sent His Son to be our Lord Jesus Christ. He sent His Son to assume our nature. He sent His Son to take our place. He sent His Son to obey the law. He sent His Son to die for our sins. He sent His Son to rise from the dead. He sent His Son to go back to heaven and pray for us. He sent His Son to come again at the end of time to take us to glory. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing here as he puts it this way. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That name is the peculiar, characteristic, Christian designation of the God whom we adore. It designates Him as the God of redemption. The God who sent His Son to redeem sinners like us. It's a title, therefore, that does show His closeness to us and His intimacy with us. And my friends, see that today. Dear, troubled, grieving, heartbroken Christian, God the Father is near to you today because He gave His Son to be your Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He's the God of redemption. He's the God who gave Christ to be our Savior, our Deliverer. Jesus Christ's Father. Here's how to think about it now. Jesus Christ's Father is your Father. He's the Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you're truly saved, you can say that. Christ is mine. I am His. He's my Lord Jesus Christ. He's my Redeemer. And that means by extension, God is my Father. And you see, that's how God becomes our Father. It's through this blessed thing where He gave Christ to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, the end of it will be that as He exalted His Son, so He will exalt you. He will lift you out of your trials someday. Now, I can't tell you, I'm not a prophet. I cannot tell you what will happen tomorrow. I cannot say to people who are going through trials presently how quickly they will end, or when they will end, or if they ever will end. But I can tell you this. I mean, ever will end in this life. Because you may carry your load to the grave. We're not charismatics who deceive people and tell them, if you only have enough faith, you can be healed. If you only have enough faith, you can do anything under the sun. My friend, that is a lie. The Bible says, through much tribulation, we will enter into the kingdom of God. And I can't tell you from this pulpit today that one of these days, your trials will all be over. One might end, but let me tell you something, another's going to come. Undoubtedly. But I can tell you this. One day they will all be gone. No more pains. No more sorrows, no more aches, no more perplexities, no more tears. It will all be gone because Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father. 
to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, one day we will be raised up above every trouble, trial, perplexity, no more death, no more sin, no more sorrow, nothing. Because He's our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you sitting here today are to be pitied because He's not your Lord Jesus Christ. You're in your sin. You don't have this. Your whole future is dark and bleak and dangerous. You need Him as your Lord Jesus Christ. So that first name shows God's affinity with us. But then the next one, where it says He's the Father of mercies, that name defines God's affection for us. Affection. It rings with affection. The Father of mercies. The word mercy signifies pity or compassion with regard to the ills of others. And so He is the Father of mercies. You know, God is characterized by mercy. And I love that quality that's in God. I think of the psalmist where he says in Psalm 86 twice, that God is plenteous in mercy. I think of Daniel 9 verse 9 where Daniel writes and he says this, To the Lord our God belong mercies. And therefore, He is the Father of mercies. And that signifies the affection that He feels for His people in the midst of all their afflictions. So what should you do? You should take that name. And you should go back to the throne of grace do this, Christian. And having learned what it signifies, God's affection for you, take it back to Him and say, Lord, You're the Father of mercies. Will You not alleviate at least my sorrow, my pain, my heartaches? Will You not do this for Your poor child? I remember reading the biographies of Spurgeon, a number of them, there's so many of them. And you may know that C.H. Spurgeon was crippled with gout from he was a relatively young man. He died a relatively young man in his 50s, but he was crippled with gout. And to read where he tells of going to his room, and he pled, Wilt thou not have mercy on thy dear child? Spurgeon, the mighty man of God, right down at the bottom of the awful pain that gout is, and I know because I have suffered it, I'm sure many of you have too, but Spurgeon's was something unusual. And there he was, not trusting in his own efforts or whatever, but going to his Father, to the Father of mercies, and pleading for mercy. And God heard him, because he tells that immediately it lifted. Now, it came back, and it killed him eventually. But in that moment, the Father of mercies lifted the pain because God has affection for us. Quickly, the third name that's in that, first, that verse 3, the God of all comfort. The word comfort means consolation. It means the name, the God of all comfort, that our God can administer comfort or consolation to our souls. And you see that in the next verse, verse number 4, which begins with these words, "...who comforteth us in all our tribulation." And so this is Paul's testimony, that his God was the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He felt the closeness, the affinity of the Father with him. That his God whom he adored was the Father of mercies. He received mercy from the Lord so many, many times, this man Paul. But also his God whom he adored was to him a God with the ability to actually comfort him. He says, who comforteth us. It's the present tense. 
as he's in the middle of the comfort, or sorry, in the middle of the tribulation, he's able to say, he is comforting me as I write. He's comforting me as I open my heart up to you, Corinthians, and tell you some of these things. The Lord was comforting this man. And my friend, the question is, how was he doing it? Well, that's why I I got you to try to sing that hymn this morning. Because that hymn's about the Comforter, the Holy Ghost. I know there are other hymns, but I like that one a lot. But He is the Comforter. Isn't that what Christ said? John 14, 15, 16, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. The Comforter comes through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ to the saints, and He administers comfort directly and immediately to the soul of the Christian. And I have been with many Christians, uh, people in the churches that I've pastored over all these years, and I have found their testimony over and over and over again that the Lord comforted them. If you will turn here, or sorry, actually stay in this chapter, chapter 1 here, go down to verse 8, and notice what Paul says there. We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Now, just stay there for a moment with verse 8 of this chapter, because he refers here to a serious incident that threatened his life. And notice his terms. He says, first of all, there in verse number 8, our trouble which came to us in Asia, we were pressed out of measure, above strength. And the word pressed there could also be read burdened, but that word pressed is a word that is used very often in Greek language with regard to a wearied animal bowed down beneath a load that is beyond that animal's strength to carry. Maybe a little donkey or a camel, whatever it might be. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's using a word that was found in his day in that realm of things. Animals of burden, animals carrying heavy loads to be pitied because they were overburdened, and they were pressed down. They were at the very point of collapse. That's the word that Paul uses. Maybe you're there today. Maybe there's a load on you that's about to press you right down, and you feel that you can't carry that load anymore. And then he goes on to say this in verse 8, in so much that we despaired even of life. And the word despaired means to be utterly at a loss, without a way of escape. I tell you, Paul's burdens, trials were real. And may I say, my friend, they were more than anything that an ordinary man, even his fellow apostles, ever had to confront so heavy, he was like an animal carrying a burden. He was just absolutely pressed down by it. Too much for him, he felt. Despairing of his very life. The word despaired there means, as I said, to be utterly at a loss or without a way of escape. He couldn't see any way out of this. Have you ever been there? Not knowing what the answer is, or where to turn, or where to go. My friend, you're not alone. You're not alone. But remember this. God has the ability to deliver you. He's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations. Now, notice verse 9 now. Notice what he says there, but we had the sentence of death on ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. And the word answer means, sorry, the word sentence means response or answer. And what was the, the, the response? What was the answer that Paul felt himself in that situation? 
God, here's the answer. Here's what he saw. Here's, here's what filled his soul. God has brought me into this dire situation so that I will renounce all trust in myself, all human wisdom, every effort of my own, and I will trust in the God who is able to raise the dead. And if you look at verse 10, because he doesn't stop with verse 9, he must, you must go into verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver. This is Paul's peculiar personal experience. God delivered him from whatever that was in Asia. Obviously, it was a threat in his life, so real, so powerful, that he was imminently facing death. But he says, God delivered us from that awful death, and He's still delivering me. And he says, in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. I know that, and I've done it. I've preached that verse another way, out of its context, addressing sinners, the past, the present, the future. The Lord can save you from every form of death, but that's not what the verse means in its context. It's talking about Paul's peculiar trial. He's burdened down like an animal with a load that cripples it. He is despairing of life, and yet he was trusting in God. And God delivered him because he's the God of all comfort. And he's able to deliver. There is Paul's affirmation. As you see those wonderful names in verse 3, He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's near to us. He's the Father of mercies. He has pity on us. He's the God of all comfort. He has the ability to lift us, to carry us, to take us onwards in the face of all of these things that come our way. I must close. The Apostle's application is my final thought here because we can't a minute here, a minute or two here just to say this. You can't leave verse 4 without going to the end of it. Just read it all with me. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Now listen carefully, Christian, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. What's Paul's application? God takes you through your trials. He then comforts you. And out of that comfort that you have received from the Lord, you are enabled to comfort other people. And how often I have said, use this verse in going to people who have been in deep, deep waters. And I've tried to show them Here's a reason why you're going through this. Because the Lord has taken you through this experience to teach you. Because one of these days you're going to meet somebody else in the same position, another Christian, and you will be able to comfort them out of the comfort you have received from the Lord. Now, Christian people, that's what we are to do. Out of our tears, our sorrows, our troubles, our perplexities, out of all that comes upon every child of God, we don't know what to do or where to turn. God's teaching us. He's not been hard on us. I was talking to some people recently, and they'd had an awful experience. And they said to me, an awful experience in this way, because of something that happened in their lives, they were told, God is punishing you for what you did. Now, my friend, that is the utmost of cruelty. God does not punish His children. Well, yes, He chastens us when it's necessary. But his chastening is not punishment. He doesn't punish 
his people. Christ was punished for us. Yes, the Lord chastens us. Don't entertain that. It's a lie. It will drive you to despair. Never mind the trouble you might be in if somebody comes along and tells you, you've been punished for what you did years ago or whatever it might be. My friend, if the Lord were to punish us for what we did years ago, He never would have stopped, would He? There's so much we need to be punished for. You see, we need all to be in hell if we got what we deserved. But thank God, our punishment has been borne by our Savior. And yes, when the Lord loves, He corrects. He chastens every son He receives. But He doesn't punish. And so, He does comfort. And in your trials, look for the comfort. Because some of these days, somebody else is going to come along and say, can you help me? Look where I am. I don't know what to do. And you'll be able to sit down with that person and as best you know how, bring comfort. May the Lord teach us. May the Lord write His Word in our hearts. May He use it today to instruct us for His own glory. And may He bring to us all that these verses teach us. Let us bow in prayer. Let us come to the Lord. Father in heaven, let us know our hearts. Let us know where we are in life. Let us know the pressures that are upon Thy church, upon Thy children. O Lord, times of deep despair, darkness, not knowing where to turn, where to go. Lord, come. Come, we pray. Show that Thou art in affinity with us. Thou art the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to rest on Your ability and all that Thou art unto Thy people. Help us to draw from it. May we know Thy help today. May we go on serving the Lord until the day is done, the race is won, and we're carried to glory. Hear and answer prayer. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit be with all who are Thine, both this day and forevermore. Amen.